BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. The Incomparable, number 626, August 2022. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, appearing on this episode in Glorious 1D. Jason Snell is painting the Zeppelin hangar this week. We offer to help, but there's a particular shade of blue he insists on. On this episode, we're talking about Toontowns, past and present, and the humor and nostalgia inherent in vacuuming up the intellectual property of conglomerate studios and turning them to your own purposes, and movies that wink and nod. That's right, it's the 1988 movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a thinly-veiled tribute to the movie Chinatown, if borrowing a hunk of the plot is a tribute, and the just-released 2022 Chippendale Rescue Rangers, a fully unveiled tribute to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Joining me on this episode is a distinguished panel of Animaniacs, Shelley Brisbane. Well, hello, I'm just over here making a bootleg of the bootleg we're going to bootleg later on. All right. Well, don't put a hole in the wall because you might run into it. Uh, Moises Shuyan, hello. Welcome. Walt sent me. <laughs> What's that, Club? And David J. Lore, uh, you've always been a cartoon to me. Spin it, let's begin it, bear and grid it when you're in it. You can win it and admit it when you spin it, spin it, spin it. All right. We'll pay the royalties for that later. Um, we can sing any song from Bambi as long as it's before 1927. <laughs> so uh, these two films... Yeah. So these two films, uh, I, I watched the new Chippendale and I found it charming enough to say, Hey, shouldn't we do an episode about this? But looking through our back catalog, we never really talked about who framed Roger Rabbit. And I guess, uh, of the episodes I've hosted, I think comparable, most of them have been cartoon based for some reason. And this is no exception. Uh, so I went back and rewatched it. I'd seen it, uh, a number of times, but the last time was many years ago. So I put fresh eyes on it and I actually watched the Chippendale movie twice because that's the kind of research I do once solo and once with a 15 year old who doesn't know any of the media properties referenced. So uh, that's, where, <laughs> that's where I'm coming from. Uh, when, let's uh, I'd like to talk about kind of the, the overview of this sort of, um, you know, meta, meta, meta reference thing, both the old and the new one. And we can talk about that a little first and then we can dig into the films, what we thought about them and and uh, problematic elements from the past, and maybe problematic elements from the future in each movie as well as the stuff that's good. Uh, so let's, uh, I don't know if we want to do a quick go, go around first. Uh, so I want to have any particular thoughts about this, a uh, very wink, wink, nod, nod, nudge, nudge, um, you know, uh, let's use every cartoon character we can and stick them in a movie approach to a film. Well, the, the referential referentiality is something that came to mind watching both of them 
in light of our recent episode about adult animation or mm. animation made for adults, because I, I found it really interesting that Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I enjoyed very much as a kid. I was five when it came out. I loved it and adored it and learned some of the references because I saw them in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Rescue Rangers does not as much feel like a movie for kids. Could kids watch it? Sure. But it's really much more made for former kids like myself <laughs> who were kids when Who Framed Roger Rabbit and the original Rescue Rangers series came out. That's so it, I, I, I find it, I find that an interesting dynamic that I wasn't anticipating. I was kind of expecting the Rescue Rangers movie to really be the kind of reboot that, um, that they talk about throughout the entire running time for that property. And I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting that Disney let them do whatever they wanted with a Disney afternoon staple that they otherwise had little use for outside of the, the Chippendale park life shorts and little things here and there that they've done with the characters since the eighties. Well, can I bring up something there too, which was funny is that who framed Roger rabbit on rewatching it. I thought this is kind of an adult movie that was definitely aimed at kids and Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers is a kids movie that seems definitely aimed at adults, as you noted. But I adults agree like completely. Up, that's that's the way I took it. I really think Roger Rabbit is aimed at adults and is 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 appealing to kids. But the structure of the movie and the not only the referentialness of it, but just sort of the tone of the jokes, it's it's really aimed at an adult audience. And the 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 Chip and Dale's thing. Uh, I mean, all the referentiality certainly has an adult perspective because you you're, you're looking back, at, but you're looking and you're you're taking an adult perspective, but from an adult nostalgia perspective, you're not mm, making jo mm -hmm. jokes for adults. You're making jokes for adults who used to be kids and who are going. I remember the series, and I will say, I never watched the series, so I have no like connection to that original property. But I got most of the jokes because I've been alive for a while. I'll say that. Um I watched Chippendale Rescue Rangers as an adult. I was an adult at the time and I watched the Disney afternoon and really liked it when it was first on. So I have right? that kind of nostalgia. Uh, David, I want to, yeah, I want you to, I want you to say what you want to say, but I also want to bring up something which is uh, uh, because uh, you and I are both, I, mean, I think, uh, excuse me, Moises is the youngest of us in this group, but we're all, the rest of us are all about the same age. There's that thing of like, um, let's make sure and talk about what it was like to see who framed Roger Rabbit when it came out. Too, I'm really like, like I forgot. I watched the behind the scenes uh, making of thing, and I'd completely, really forgotten how revolutionary it was at the time. Like how ridiculous it was oh, that yeah. this was made. So I'm sorry, but go ahead with your point. Oh, that's all right. No, I, I was gonna say I was, <clears throat> I was grown when Roger Rabbit came out. I watched uh, Animaniacs and the Disney Afternoon and Freakazoid and all of these things which were intentionally not aimed at my age group. And and yet they were filled with gags for me, right? Freakazoid has a whole running thing about Harlan Ellison. It's got a <laughs> Ricardo Montalban <laughs> running thing. It's got, you know, references to 50s movies and just, you know, the Pope and the Clintons. And I mean, it's nuts. And so it was it was like, oh, I appreciate this too. There, they, I still remember a, a kids WB runner, uh, one year where it was, I think it was the new year's countdown and they, it was all framed as kids WB. Yeah. And they had this running joke of Christopher Walken is sitting at the table and it's an animated <laughs> Walken 
and and the Warner brothers and the Warner sister are there and they keep like, yeah, he's he's a little strange. And every time they would cut back to to the cartoon walking and he would just go, why won't anyone say hello to me? (laughs) And the running gag was say hello to Christopher Walken, which what child is going to get that? In, you know, 1993 or four or whatever it was. And so, you know, these were shows that, yeah, they were aimed at kids, but it was okay to be a parent or, or a grown, I mean, just an, an adult watching them. Um, and so, yeah, Roger Rabbit hit me square, you know, between the eyes because I love meta humor. I love meta stories. You know, I... I think about the same time I was reading If on a Winter's Night a Traveler by Italo Calvino, which is super meta. Um, and so, yeah, it it was strange. It's it is a very classical noir tale. It is well structured. It's it plays fair. It, and, and, and the jokes are fun. They're 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 adult without going all the way. Like if you know, you know. Uh, for it's instance, not, the, it's not sleazy. I think yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's funny. And sometimes it's a little, risque. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like remember Bugsy Malone is of this era where, um, which, uh, you know, I sometimes think we should go through films with kids acting as adults. Uh, but Bugsy, well, Bugsy Malone had, was played pretty much straight also. And it was really weird. And it would, I think it's actually, maybe it's a good movie. I'm not sure I need to rewatch it to make sure, but it, um, there's a sensibility about it. Where same thing with Roger Rabbit. And the, you know, you watch the making of it's Roger Zemeckis, and we just talked about Roger Zemeckis for um, uh, Contact. You know, uh, the Summer of Contact was up two years ago now or longer, and uh, that film just celebrated its 25th anniversary. And you're like, there's nine years between those two films. He made this film, and then he made a film that's I think one of the great sci-fi movies. And you're like, that man didn't treat this like a comic book movie or a cartoon movie. He had, you know, it was a it was a noir. That was funny and nobody mugged, you know, the pre Jim Carrey style of, of things being funny in context because we're the super observer as opposed to, um, you know, like a cartoon, right? Which to me is kind of the difference between the two movies because Roger Rabbit is not winking at you. It's making a lot of jokes that are meta, but it's self-contained. Whereas Chip and Dale is looking out at the audience the entire time going, eh, eh, you get what I'm putting down? And I find that super annoying. And that's a that's a thing that has happened in the past 20 or 30 years, probably 25, uh, especially with with Disney properties, but with plenty of others. And and Roger Rabbit is I, I was an adult as well. And I liked the throwback quality both to Chinatown and to the to the era in which it is set in the 40s because of my my interest in yes. old films and noir. <laughs> so it was like right up my alley. But it was at the time, too. I was really charmed by it. And I remember how big a deal it was that you're mixing animation and live characters. And they the, the movie knows that, too. So the movie is like, we're going to do this and we're going to talk about it. We're not just going to mix them and sort of make it assumed. We're going to tell you that we know that we're doing something pretty innovative and unique. And I, I just remember really loving it. And, you know, I have different eyes than I did back then. I still enjoyed it. I probably enjoyed it a little differently. But like I say, that that's the biggest difference between the two movies to me is that the, the Chippendale movie really wants to suck you into the joke and and have you think about how cleverly they think they are doing. And then I have some stuff to say later on about how odd it is that uh, a company like Disney is making this sort of movie. But oh, I, I want to bring up one thing quickly and I'll, I'll hand over to you is just uh, the cheap detective to me is actually a model for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. At one level, I really like the film. I, I was shocked how 
well it held up i showed it to the family my wife hadn't seen it for years and my kids thought it was the funniest thing ever and it's you know and it's goofy and it's kind of you know a little puerile in spots but it is kind of serious in a certain way like there's a serious plot in it in the middle of this ridiculous farce it pulls that off i think really well and roger rabbit is very similar that that's all but and that's chief detectives nine years before this or eight ten years before no it's about it's about 12 years but it's and it's better than the movie that it's spun out of murder by death which, yeah yeah exactly uh, does did, not hold up at all we did both those for a foot by the way if you want to go back and look at the archives right. the foot podcast we went through both and i had the same reaction i was like chief detective is a fully realized film with you know again ridiculous stuff and fart jokes and things but it's still pretty funny uh moises i'm sorry you had a point to make uh, well con- continuing off of something that shelly said but actually directly linking into what you were saying glenn um one of the things that works so well for me about who framed roger rabbit um is not just that I love Bob Hoskins, but because he commits to the bit mm. so fully. He yes. takes this completely ridiculous mise-en-scene seriously and is playing this as a straight-ahead, hard-boiled detective character and doesn't let up from that, where Rescue Rangers, you're either okay with the Lonely Island-style get it? We're hilarious kind of thing <laughs> that is very much their brand. And that's that, you know, it's a choice and it's something that works. I mean, I'm, I am, I am a long time, um, devotee of stuff of theirs that it seems like nobody saw like mm. pop star, never stop, never stopping hot rod. Um, th- there is some tremendous anarchic comedic bliss to be found in those. And what I like so much about rescue Rangers is that it's not trying to just be who framed Roger Rabbit. It is very much in tribute to who framed Roger Rabbit and playing with a lot of the kinds of dynamics of, of, uh, of weaving in different styles of animation. And that in and of itself situationally is hilarious such that you don't need to really double and triple underline it for people to get the joke. A lot of the time, I mean, for me, one of the great opportunities of it that Who Framed Roger Rabbit didn't get to is Rescue Rangers has a claymation character in it. Yeah, that, that's 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 to me the the thing that I, I I like that they aren't just trying to do Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They are using the notion of it as a cross media thing as an opportunity to do weird stuff. And, I, you know, I guess spoilers for both of these movies going forward, but the references that rescue rangers packed in are relevant and vivid to the here and now, um, in, in ways that I, I guess, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Daffy and Donald stuff and who framed Roger Rabbit was, oh my gosh, I'm seeing both of these characters from disparate animation companies in the same movie <laughs> in, in rescue rangers. It's, oh my God, how did they get the rights to ugly Sonic? Right. I, I was going to say the, the big difference between the two movies now to me, I mean, in 1988, I thought this, I thought, why does Daffy and, and Bugs and Tweety, they don't look quite right. And they look right for 1946, 1947. That's what they looked like then. You know, we grew up on all the, all the cartoons from the late forties and the early fifties and that, and the look that sort of solidified there. And in Roger Rabbit, it's sort of like, look, we got bugs for a scene. Hey, we got Tweety for a scene. Yeah. And, and it's very, you know, it's very patient and, and mannered about how it introduces them. And then they're just gone 
and uh, Chip and Dale, it's it is full anarchy. It's like let's get everybody, and instead of just saying, "Hey, here's a funny scene with Bugs," here's Bugs saying two lines, and he's not really acting like Bugs. Um, it's it's actually pretty pretty good about how it portrays all the different characters and how you think like i mean yes this is what i think the actors playing he-man and skeletor would be talking about while they're sitting at an autograph table that like totally worked for me oh i want to just mention one spoiler thing too is we'll talk in a little more depth about the films and i don't think it makes sense to have a spoiler horn for a 34 year old movie this film came out <laughs> night so we will not spoiler horn on roger rapper if you don't know the plot then you're going to hear it uh for chip and dale just to preserve the the uh thinnest veil of uh anticipation uh we will fire a, sp- a spoiler horn off before we admit to spoilers there and then we'll come back at the end after after the spoiling part uh but yeah I, there's also that um like w- to what extent were the random appearances integrated so in in uh roger rabbit they had to invent new characters for the film right that all the primary characters are are uh new and they um you know how to develop something that was consonant with what people were would expect but they weren't you know bugs bunny wasn't the hero chippendale rescue rangers you know we've got these five primary characters from the the show um i, I was thinking as we were planning for this episode too i realized that who framed Rob, roger rabbit is a feature film that works as a feature film it has all the elements of it right it's got a serious plot there there are consequences there's personal growth um it's a mystery you know we get all the detective story all of that the the chip and dale uh it's a great afternoon tv special done in a movie style and i think it succeeds really well and as i said i i really enjoyed it even the second time it has a it gets a little thin a second time as an adult but it was still pretty fun but it's really a really good extended disney afternoon movie and I, the, one of the reasons is there are stakes i mean there's points in it that are a little gruesome or you're like oh that's that's pretty dark for a film like this there is no growth nobody in that film grows from beginning to end in roger oh, rabbit i don't know about that well let's talk about that when we get to it because i <laughs> i feel like at the end of the film misapprehensions are cleared up as opposed to people actually change it's like oh i've been wrong about that for 30 years or something uh i wanted to bring up one thing that was i thought was hilarious uh, just a, a meta thing about uh roger rabbit is watching uh, and uh if you watch this on um, disney plus they have extras so you can watch the behind the scenes of and the thing i did not know i thought you know i don't remember how they made animation that day and i remember hearing this was a revolutionary thing that they were integrating it and they you know there's this fascinating combination of robots mime and improv that I never would have understood. And just having watched the film, then watching the making of, you're like, this explains why it comes off so great. They put everyone through intensive mime training. So they would shoot the scene with stand-in dummies and then they pull it all out. They block it. And then all the actors would have a sense of where everything should be. They would check the sight lines, but they would have just gone through it with the actual objects. And I think it plays like when you see the scenes, when they show some of these scenes, you're like, Oh, this is why it has such a sense of physicality. They had a presence there. And then the voice actors were nearby and they re-recorded them later in the studio. But like uh, Charles Fleischer was wearing a rabbit suit. He was wearing a Roger Rabbit outfit and he looked ridiculous and he was absolutely dead serious about it. They were interviewing at the time, some contemporary footage, and he's like, I prepare for this like I would any other role. And you're like, no, he's for real. And that was his part of his deal. And so he, so they would block the scene, they would shoot it, and then the actors were free to um, 
improvise within some constraints and then the animators were drawing over every frame, right? There's no computer animation or very, very little in this. If there's anything at the time. So they used like robotic instruments to have the thinnest possible profile to like hold baby Huey's cigar and to throw to crash the plates to the ground. And I was looking at this and like, this is not, you know, this is not what I would have guessed. I would have guessed something totally different. I, I was thinking green screens, how much do they paint over? It's like, no, 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 no. They wanted to paint out as little as possible for every frame. They wanted to paint over everything. And, and that's how they achieved that. Another um, dynamic difference between the two of them, the last half hour of Roger Rabbit is when we finally go to Toontown and Rescue Rangers, uh, everything is Toontown. Toons are everywhere. Um, and from the very beginning, everything is very immersed. And um, I, I think it's I think it's fascinating that a movie had to be that revolutionary 34 years ago that in this day and age, I don't gather rescue Rangers cost them $200 million to make. Um, <laughs> One would hope not. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets with Noom. You get a personalized weight loss plan. That's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Let's talk about the structure of Roger Rabbit. So, um, you know, we're all, I think, film noir fans. We all know the rubric. And uh, it feels like there was a little bit of a renaissance in the 70s and 80s, like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Cheap Detective, this film, where um, it was kind of this, uh, oh, we really love noir films. They're not being made anymore. Uh, so let's make throwback films because we can do that because it's the modern time and we can make films that look like they were made in the 1940s. Yeah, so, in fact, this is kind of late for that because Dead Men yeah, Don't Wear Plaid yeah. is like 81 and yeah. Cheap Detective mm -hmm. and Murder by all those other things. Think, yeah. And I, I, you know, having, like I say, been interested in this kind of stuff even back at that time, I didn't notice it then, but I noticed it to me it was like, wait, it's 88 and we're going back to 47. <laughs> so that's 40 years. And I dig it, but it's and I understand why they did it, given the content, but it 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 does feel like they've reached way back. It's not just sort of let's rest on something that everybody is talking about and it's current in the culture. So it it I, in one way, it kind of feels weird that they did that. In another way, it kind of frees them up because they can homage whatever they want to, but they don't have to assiduously adhere to tropes because not everybody is talking That's about right. film art, right? You can pick what you want to talk about. And it's it's very different from the novel that it was based on, which was set relatively in the present day. Oh yeah, the you novel. Know, the they novel made a choice really to weird. make a film noir. Yeah, and you know, like now, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid looks like it was made in the forties because yeah, sixty percent of it actually yeah. was. <laughs> right, but, right. You know, yeah, there's still, actual clips the, and the matching up is really well done. Yeah. 
Well, let's uh, let's talk. Uh, let's do a quick overview of the film, and then we'll go and dig into the stuff that we would like to talk about more, which includes problematic aspects of a film that is uh, 35 years old, and in some ways feels like it throws back even further to some uh, problems in Hollywood and filmmaking representation, for sure. Uh, so the film, you know, film opens with a cartoon, which is great. It's unexpected. We don't, you know, we think we're going to see live action film and then we cut back, you know, and this, again, this is something we see in uh, exactly in the uh, Chippendale mirrors it precisely. We cut back and we see it's a set tunes and humans interact. I really like the efficiency of this movie. Like we, we kind of see things very quickly. We get the thing set up. I think I'm at minute 14 and we kind of know everything that's going up. Like, like we know the exposition, we know all the characters we've got Eddie who has a tragic backstory. He's appears to be an alcoholic. Uh, he's in this beat up office. Uh, he's down on his luck. He needs money. There's this studio situation going up, some kind of competition between the cartoon studio or two different cartoon studios, uh, or, or sorry, Acme making uh, props rather, and Maroon Studios making uh, making the films. And um, and we get all that, and then there's a conflict with public transportation because uh, my, and I wrote down a few lines for this film, but I like who needs a car in L.A. We got the best public transportation system in the world, which is you know I remember laughing at that, not having been no, I guess I'd been to L.A once by that point in my life thinking like, Oh, you know, but we'd studied it like LA in the 1980s was the thing when you're growing up, you studied as the example of a, a failed city, right? It was like, it was crime ridden there had highways everywhere. It had smog people, you know, it was the worst place in the world. And you'll, and just them being able to evoke that and say that I think was an incredible, uh, you know, it was a knock, but also a trope. Um, Every movie that covered LA in the forties and fifties in any regard, has to reference that, those streetcars that existed and that went away. And I remember there was a point at which, and it was probably in the early 80s, and I, another thing I'm very interested in is public transportation. I find it fascinating. I like the history of it. But there were documentaries where it was like, it's a secret. L.A. used to have streetcars, and <laughs> yes, then General yes. Motors got rid of them. And it was a whole thing. And so... You know, it's almost in this movie when I saw it and remembered it, I was like, oh, this is almost a trope at this point because I know that story so well. But it was funny nonetheless. I liked it. Yeah. And then we've got, uh, you know, so we have the Chinatown setup is Eddie is hired for, you know, a hundred bucks, which is a vast amount of money, apparently, in the context of that, those times. And uh, I do like the Maltese Falcon in his office as he walks in. Yes, or something. that was great. Yeah. As, as a hat rack. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Uh, so he, you know, he's he has to go to the, the, uh, the, the Cotton Club like, uh, tune review humans only right um there's uh the ink and paint club the ink and paint club thank you and um so we get this whole setup where he goes there he sees um the va va voom jessica rabbit which is you know a, and just the whole setting is uh there's a whole bunch of issues there, right? First, it mirrors a lot of the, the wolf the wolf cartoons where a wolf is attending or a normal person sometimes the is attending. Tex Avery stuff. Tex Avery, right. yeah. Red Hot Riding Hood is one of them, and there's another one that's, they all played off that. Yeah, so you have, you know, it's all very familiar if you watched old cartoons, and the scene is all set up. And it's, you know, uh, a very sultry scene. It's played for adults. It's not played for laughs really it's kind of a Marilyn Monroe scene a cartoon scene um Eddie takes pictures of uh you know Jessica Rabbit the human playing patty cake and that's set up for laughs almost a Steve Martiny kind of thing that it's set up as if it's this sexy thing and then it's like no they're just playing patty cake in an apparently erotic fashion and then uh, Acme's killed right we come into that scenario and that kind of unfolds into the movie but we're we're 
really early in the film already when everything's been set up uh, and we start to figure out where the conflicts are. And again, following a lot of the elements of Chinatown here. So um, I guess I'll just, I mean, we could just run through this, which is, so for those who haven't seen the film, here's the uh, non-spoiler horn. Spoiler thing is, uh, is uh, Eddie pursues the case. He runs into Christopher Lloyd playing Judge Doom and um, winds up getting sucked into a situation in which the conflict is that Judge Doom actually has been buying up the property through Cloverleaf, uh, and he wants to um, he wants to leverage things so he can tear down Toontown and build super highways, basically, or just regular highways at that time. And uh, in the process, is just going to you know bulldoze literally over anybody he has to. Um, I mean, that's kind of you know at some level that's sort of the whole plot, right? We think Roger is set up as the murderer. Uh, that's kind of a, a thing they borrowed from the book, um, and then. That sets up their, you know, the kind of the chase they're doing throughout the film. Um, anything that we should uh, talk about in kind of the middle there as we, uh, as the film proceeds? Um, you know, Eddie's uh, brother got killed by a tune. Uh, got a piano dropped on him. They, they got the drop on him, literally. And you know there's an explanation coming. I mean, you've been told what actually happened, but who did it and under what circumstances, you know, that's set up as something that we care about finding out. And we don't till till late late in the film. It's very much played straight, like like a movie from nineteen forty seven, and it it builds it lays in those little details. I just remember the laughter and the flaming red eyes. You know, every every few scenes we get a little more detail and a little more detail, so that when we finally meet who killed Eddie's brother, which spoiler horn was Judge Doom, what? who is actually a tune. Um, yeah, it's- you know. Did you think the setup? So, I mean, sort of a general thing is we, you know, we've kind of jumped ahead there to the end, which I think is fine because again, this is a well-understood <laughs> film. I mean, no, it's great though because I think it's. I mean, we've all seen. Glenn Humphrey loses Bogart. control of the flow of the no, show. No, no, we've all. <laughs> no, I don't think the pl- I don't think the plot is as critical to go through every I element. Agree. Yeah, With Chippendale, yeah. we'll talk more, but yeah. it's. Uh, uh, we've seen every Humphrey Bogart Bogart film, all of us, and um, it, it is very much that that you know there's there's always a dame and the dame isn't trustworthy and she's a hot potato and then it turns out she has a hot of gold and and there's some evil forces we don't know about and they're playing wheels within wheels and then finally it's all revealed right and so Eddie puts all the pieces together and he realizes that you know there's there's one missing element that he's had all along of course right like the right. Maltese Falcon or any kind of thing like that and he pulls it out and um you know and kind of makes the whole situation right so it's it's neatly tied up but uh and yeah there, well there there was one thing that i had never noticed before as many times as i've seen this now i haven't seen it in a number of years and early on when roger is in hiding and then of course he goes and entertains everyone at the bar and, and eddie is pissed he's like what are you doing he's like but but eddie my job is to make people laugh sometimes a laugh is the only weapon you have mm. And that line jumped out at me this time because at the end, that's how Eddie saves himself and everybody else is by laughter, not by fisticuffs, not by gunplay. It's by making the weasels laugh. And I just went, oh, my God, that's beautiful. And that's true. It's it's very much uh, the, it's a line that resonates with like Sullivan's Travels by mm-hmm. Preston Sturgis. Right. Sometimes a laugh is the only thing you have. And, you know, what what do you see in him, Jessica? He makes me laugh. And that's the kind of thing that you have to show, not tell, because early yeah. earlier in the movie, 
it would be a super, it was, it's a cliche, but by the time it's uttered, by the time you see it happen, you understand why it's true. Well, and they set up, they set up this great, I think, um, you know, sad story for Eddie that feels true. When they pan over his office, you see the clippings that he's got there because he's left his brother's side of the desk untouched. And you see things like, um, you know, he saved uh, Donald's nephews recovered. Goofy is cleared. All, uh, and then there's the photo. Their father was a clown with Ringling Brothers, which I never remembered that before. There's a picture of, right. of, uh, right. of Eddie and uh, uh, what's his brother named? Teddy. Eddie and Teddy. 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 But so there's that that sad thing is like, oh, well, wait a minute. He used to be this. Then he's like, I don't work for tunes. It keeps coming up. He says it over and over again. Then we get different parts of that story gets revealed about his brother's death. And so Eddie has this, Eddie has a journey of regaining trust and faith in other people. And in the process, of course, then he uncovers the, I mean, it's a great hero's journey, right? As he starts at the bottom, he's down and out. He has to make a recovery that's partly through himself, but partly through the trust. And when Roger comes in, you know, it's just that incredible, like, like just frank honesty without any um, any effort to to, uh, to lie to him. He's like, well, everybody in Toontown knows you're the person to come to. You know, Eddie and Teddy, the Valiants are the ones who they work for the tunes, which tells you, you know, that the tunes are this, as in a lot of things that are set up like that, and notably not exactly Chip and Dale, is that they're under people, right? That they're set up to be kind of less than because they don't conform to society around them. So in fact, when they panned across the set of jobs that the Valiants had solved, I was like, man, the tunes are being set up for all kinds of stuff, like you know, murder and kidnapping. And I mean, it's not- Spy charges. Yeah, it's exactly spying and- Right. Right. Uh, so we have Eddie gets that journey as he goes from that that position and he gets a, lots of closure. You know, he gets his, he gets his girl because she believed in him, but he had really, you know, he she he was like find a better person, right? Find somebody you deserve. He makes a friend in Roger. He recovers, um, you know, all this stuff. His he's, sense of humor, the, sense of humor. Um, yeah, let's talk about Bob Hoskins. Isn't he wonderful? I mean, I'm so he's sorry. He's great. I'm so sorry he's been gone for so long. It seems like a I, very long time. I think what time. you said, what so, I think you said, Glenn, I'm not sure, but somebody said earlier, He abs maybe it was Moises, he Moises. absolutely commits to the role. He takes it completely serious, plays it straight, and is just like you believe this sort of been, he, he's down in the mouth, he's, he's downtrodden, he drinks, he's you know, completely and utterly devastated by the loss of his brother. There is no point at which he overacts or disappears into the scenery. He's just he's so, he's so good. He's really good. And and he can't help but do the right thing anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though he doesn't. I don't work for a tune. Right. I work for I work for Maroon. I don't work for tunes. But <laughs> he can't help but hide Roger. He can't help but figure this out. Yeah, because once he's presented with a dilemma that is immediate. I mean, the weasels are after him and Roger is there. What is he going to do? He's not going to because it's not in his nature to say, you're on your own, pal. I don't work for you. It, he he just does what comes naturally, which is protecting him. Uh, okay, this is where you get the adult part of a kid's film. I mean, uh, kids did go see this, right? I mean, Moises, you, uh, you were you were, you were a child. Yeah, you remember. But it, yeah, but it's like first you get that horrible execution of the shoe, which comes fairly early. Oh God, that's so. T oh the, yeah. wow, <laughs> the dip. It, I had forgotten just, about it, and I was surprised at how much it affected me. It was the, just brutal. The first the time I saw it in the theater, oh, the the it was it was full of kids, and the people just went nuts. Like, oh my god! Oh my god! Who's ever put anything like that on, that on film before? That poor shoe. That yeah. poor shoe. How many? And then there's that like a probate, shoe. and it's and it's partner, 
What about its partner? Right. It's alone forever. Well, and, and the secret of it is they've given it a voice. They've given it, you know, sentience in the sense that it, it, it has it has something it wants to do. It's going someplace. It knows it's in danger. And then you hear it. And I, I just the voice reminded me of, of Beaker from the Muppets, honestly. And so I was just like, oh, God, this is terrible. The screenplay genius of it is that it wasn't a cat. It wasn't a dog. It yeah. wasn't right. It was a it was a thing that was given was sentience, thing. but it was not a thing with a it was not uh, it was not an animal type right. um, that that kids could go oh that's oh no that's like my sentient yeah my, if you explained yeah. it you'd sentient, have to say and then they killed the shoe and people would be like wait what are you wait, talking what? about <laughs> oh no my my sentient uh, you know converse right. like i have at home um none of that so it it, it works it works but it, it, it works as stakes, something though you, exactly you, you, it's it's important that it create stakes it's terrible it's brutal i'm not sorry that they did it but it absolutely gives the the thing stakes and it's because when they're because they're going to talk this whole time about this stuff that destroys tunes this dip and unless you see the dip actually doing some harm because you don't for the rest of the movie then it doesn't mean anything and and with any any film noir or any fairy tale you really have to see why the evil person is evil you need to understand this is not just, oh, they have a difference of opinion. No, they're they're evil. He's he's so cartoonishly evil, which makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but also evil evil too, right? Like he has both he has both kinds of evil, the the very bad kind and the cartoon kind. Uh, also, I think Eddie has um this is tribute to Zemeckis, is Eddie has this moral imperative. Once he witnesses that act, you can't go back, right? Because he knows what the stakes are, as Shelley was saying. Uh, but it's also um incredible thing as you're saying Shelley like to, you know how would this be written how would you describe it but I mean I think that whole scene is 40 seconds or something and it's you don't you've never seen the shoe before and you're practically crying for the shoe at the end of that yep. that is fantastic filmmaking um you also get right after that you know so you get that execution you've got um, baby Huey talking about his his three-year-old dinky you've got uh probate herman. baby herman baby, herman. baby oh, Huey is a duck. sorry not baby Huey. <laughs> <laughs> Huey Dewey Louie and Herman uh you got a probate <laughs> prostate joke and um you know you've got bouncing boobs when Eddie stands up and boy um so there's all this kind of very adult stuff that's that's goofy and farcical or just kind of ridiculous uh, but then mixed in with uh, you know uh the the stuff that's uh that, that kids can pr perfectly well enjoy like Roger Rabbit the whole scene in the bar when he can't constrain himself is great. I mean, kids, kids love that stuff. Kids love dishes yeah. being thrown to the ground, the record skipping and he can't stop. So he keeps throwing the dishes to the ground. That's, <laughs> that's a good, uh, brilliant. I uh, also love that a judge and can commit any crime in LA that he wants. And I thought, Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh no, no. In that era, a judge probably could commit any crime he wanted. He probably could. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it does almost play like a James Elroy novel. At, at <laughs> yeah. Spots. And we're, we're just entering sort of the L.A. confidential era, yeah. the, the William Parker uh, police chief yeah. era. It's like if you if you've watched enough and Chinatown is part of that. But if you've watched enough of that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, I know the L.A. I'm in right now. And, and a lot of those stories were coming out at that point, finally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. it's true. Uh, so, that, you know, there's got a lot of good one-liners in this. I mentioned a few before. There's the great one that apparently comes from the original book. It's based on, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. It's one of, I guess, two lines. Which, of course, was very, very tempting for my introduction, but I uh, restrained myself. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. There's I mean, things like, the only woman on the podcast to have to do it, but I just restrained myself. I'm, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. I could say it about myself. <laughs> I'm just drawn that I, way. Uh, you need a heart before you kind of an attack. I kind of like that. There's just... Uh, even things when Judge uh, Doom, when he goes in that long 
that long rant about what highways will bring is just, I think, a thing oh, of beauty. That is beautiful. It's like a Howard you know, Rourke it's, moment. It's this Robert Moses, Howard Rourke, all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> all of them. It's, it's just this wonderful, you know, I see tire emporiums, restaurants that prepare food in a rapid manner, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, 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 you're, and in the, you're in the greed is good 80s Glorious. right there, yeah. too. Yeah. So you have this sort of like super th- this definition of super villainy that is all about capitalism that is just perfectly on brand for the time that we're in. And and the, the just the, the sort of tragic heartbreak that, you know. Eddie and the Toons win and, you know, yay, rapid transit. And yet everything that Judge Doom was planning happened. Yeah, that's right? the that's We the have freeways and all that? of that. And you're watching it going, but, but, but they won. that's what happened. They won. What happened? Yeah. Well, we don't live in Toontown. This is not Toontown. Happy Fun Time is over and this is not Toontown. No matter how many times they sing, smile, darn you, smile. It's a great song. So, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the whole film should we talk about uh we talked earlier this film is interestingly made as i say the uh production date says it was released 1988 right so made over a few years before that but there's a sensibility issue that i kept coming across and i would say for me it didn't spoil the film still liked it still has a place in my heart but it was problematic is you know you can have a joke like porky pigs all beef sausage in the background and that's funny but when you have uh, bullets that Yosemite Sam gave to Eddie. And one of them is a native American bullet that pulls out a tomahawk and does a classic war whoop. I, I don't know what kind of choice they were making in 1985, 86 when they were developing the film and 88 when it's released. So should we talk about like, you know, this wasn't totally cool in the 1980s. We're kind of not exactly past that era, yeah. but we're getting there. And they feels like they were sort of like, well, we're borrowing from 30, 40, 50 years before. So we can have African-American stereotypes. We can have Native American stereotypes, Chinese stereotypes. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And all the, the sexism. Sexism. That's all of, the, of a piece because yeah. you're saying it's a pastiche of the 40s. So, of course, you have to have sexism. Of course, you have to have ladies with gams and you have to, you know, ogle them and say things that are entirely inappropriate because that's part of the era. And the, the in fact, I, I don't agree with that at all, but I understand it more than I understand the random racism. I feel like the racism particularly was just like, what are you even doing? That's not even a particularly entertaining joke. It doesn't contribute to the plot. It's just like gratuitous and stupid. Yeah, it felt a little like they could get away with it. Uh, and they left it in as a callback as opposed to something they, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen a discussion of that. Um, but you know, there's even in the background, like there's one scene, they just pan over and there's, uh, characters that I recognize. I think they may actually be original ones, but they're absolutely Chinese stereotypes, facially coloration yeah. and everything. And you're like, it's, you know, you, somebody animated that for this film. So a choice was made that this was okay. And I mean, there, there are some like little cameo things that you see of, you know, various Warner Brothers and Disney IP characters where like you see Jose from, from Saludos Amigos for like two seconds. You don't see Panchito with his, you know, Pancho Villa stuff (laughs) or anything, but like, 
a couple of the weasels, it's are they dressed like the forties or are they supposed to be wearing zoot suits? Yeah. And yeah. they're like they're they're Mexican. Well, I will bags. tell you, uh, because I watch this movie with audio description as I often oh, do. Yeah. And it was referred to specifically as zoot suits that the weasels are wearing. Yeah, and there they we were go. doing some of them were doing like a guys and dolls sort of accent, like the lead weasel, and others were doing clearly exaggerated Mexican accents. You have the um the crows playing jazz and you know you, I mean you know I mean you have you have the lead weasel, uh, voiced by David Lander of Laverne and Shirley. Oh, yeah. But his I character, thought that sounded familiar. I was that's wondering. It's like, that's not, a Lenny or a Squiggy. Shoot. It's one of those guys. Yeah, it's up everybody, but not him. It's Squiggy. And uh, his character is never named in the movie mm. because his character's name is Smartass, and they couldn't mm. get away with that. So that's even funny. like the, the action figures that they put out, his name is Smart Guy. Smart Guy. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a bootlegged uh, uh-huh. Doesn't it? Uh, and you know, and the I mean, you got it. So, like, not to get, I'm not going to dig so deep in this, but you have Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. They apparently there was some deal if either was going to appear on screen, they both had to have the same screen time, which is why you see them almost in identical scenes. But you know, we're, those are both minstrelsy characters, and it's very well known. And so it was sort of weird. I'm in the middle of this. They're in Toontown. I'm starting to see all these stereotypical characters appear. And then Bugs Bunny and Mickey show up. And I'm like, well, what am I complaining about? Like, that's the most sub Rosa part of it. But there is all this stuff above it. And they're and they're willing, not like you should throw Mickey Mouse out with the bathwater or bugs, but there is a recognition of that, that ha- there's a reckoning that hasn't fully taken place. And I feel like that lent them, you know, some of the cover to do some of this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, like the, the gorilla at the Ink and Paint Club and the way Eddie reacts to him when he's thrown out. And I'm just like, mm. yeah, you, you really didn't need that joke either. That's not, it's not funny. It's, it's just, uh, it makes me think less of Eddie. Yeah. And bogey, you know, bogey certainly says things in some of the old films, but those were made at the time. And, um, I, I just think in the 1980s, I would argue that there are were films also being made that looked at some of these older things and lampoon them and turn them around and put power into them instead of representing them without comment yeah. as a thing of the Or time. just said, I'm not going to do it because yeah, it's gratuitous. Right. right. One of those you know, two things. Uh, here's the thing, though. Glenn, I don't yes. know. Give me the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's let's maybe summarize this and we'll we'll move on. We've summarized the film. We've talked through. Anybody have other things about Roger? Rabbit? So let's let's do the little the thumbs up or thumbs down. Is uh, uh how do people feel about this as a film? Do you tell people, hey, this is a great film for the time. It's a great film. You might watch it with your kids. Don't watch it with your kids. What's your uh, for me for me it is uh, it is an important landmark in animation history mm. that I think it is possible for fresh you know new eyes that weren't five like I was when I saw it first um, to be able to watch it and enjoy it but I I would like to think that sensibilities have changed such that it's something that is much more readily visible to younger eyes mm. seeing it now as oh this stuff is from old stuff and this 
this thing and this thing and this thing are, you know, are not terribly great. I think that sadly the, the, the biggest disservice the film did to itself was embedding itself so deeply in this was fine in 1947. Well, it wasn't really fine, but people said that it was fine. So it was then. And that's something that has, has driven that sort of, Oh, remember when things were great in the fifties? Um, things weren't actually great for everybody in the fifties. It turns out, um, in fact, they were spectacularly not great for wide swaths of, of the populace in the United States. Um, the, the, the things that bother me about who framed Roger Rabbit are thankfully in, in many cases outside of the overt sexism that as Shelley rightly says is it's painted all over the thing. Um, you know, I I am able to enjoy it in the same way that I'm able to enjoy movies from the forties that are also awash in those kinds of issues of sexism and racism, because though they are present in most cases, they are at least couched in. This is ridiculous. Like some of the sexism is, uh, without excusing it. Um, or it's something that I'm, I'm able to look past because of the referentiality of it. Whereas I don't always, I mean, I, I, I love a, a pre-code film called night nurse, um, because I love pre-code films, but I don't really rewatch it that often. Cause I don't need to see Clark Gable smack a lady in the face. Um, that's, that's not a fun time at the movies for me. And, um, and if you'd like to hear about Night Nurse for an hour, you can refer back to our LTS episode where we covered it and spoke about that at length. <laughs> uh, see, it's just, it's all references and connections. Indeed, it all is. All the way down. That's what The Incomparable is for. We live on references. Uh, Shelley, I just love the good old episodes. Shelley, what did, <laughs> Shelley, what did you, Shelley, what did you think about, what the, did I think? about this I, movie? I, I enjoy it. I, I think for all the reasons we've said about what a well-made film it is and how clever it is. And again, like for me, it's before that period where referentialism, in my opinion, started getting in the way of films because the the self-containedness that I talked about before. And I also like this is at the coming sort of to the end of a period of nostalgia is kind of a negative word, but sort of homage to times past, not in the sense that those times were great, but in the sense that there were certain styles of making films and making other entertainment that are worth remembering, not worth, you know, preserving in amber and uh, venerating, but worth going, hey, they did some interesting things in the 40s and and let's, you know, let's uh, put a modern spin on that and let's do super clever things with animation and mixing animation with live action. Um, And so I, you know, from my, from that perspective, I really enjoy it. And I feel like that is Unfortunately, what what kind of happens to older things that have problematic elements to it to them? It's very easy, especially since we have so much entertainment at our disposal. It's very easy to say, well, something from this period or from further back, uh, we don't even need to talk about anymore because it has problematic elements. And I sometimes feel like, and I feel like with Roger Rabbit in this case, that especially if people are prepared that there are going to be some problematic things, that uh, just growing up and enjoying the movie. Uh, is is a good way to go as opposed to saying, well, I'm not going to watch it because there's sexism and there's a little gratuitous racism. You know, have a have a conversation about it if you need to. But it's a it's a really good film and it was a landmark and and I enjoyed watching it again. That's great, David. What's uh what's your summary of uh, this lovely movie? It's a great film. It it has problematic elements, but you can talk about them. You can say 
hey, we need we need to sit down and say, all right, this was okay, this wasn't. You know, I watched it with my 17-year-old who hadn't seen it in a long time, and, and now he gets more of the jokes too. And, you know, there are scenes where you go, uh, I don't know. But there are, you know, there are old films that are just bad that have those elements too. And we don't, we don't talk about them. There's no reason to go back to, to a lot of them. Whereas this, I mean, yes, it is a cinematic landmark. Yes, it is a, a, you know, a line in the sand saying here, now we can do really cool technical stuff. Uh, but it is also just a good pastiche of that era and that style of movie and film noir. You can comment on the problematic elements of the, the trope that you're playing with or the genre you're playing with. And Roger Rabbit doesn't, it just takes them and says, yeah, this is, this is what we do in this movie. Right. And so, yeah, I had a, I had a problem with it in 1988 in terms of that. I had a problem with it now. Do I love the movie? Yes. I love the movie. Watching it now and read and just discovering the whole, you know, sometimes a laugh is the only weapon you have. Uh, just sort of made me fall in love with it all over again because that is a really good lesson. And I mean the the thing that seeing it as a kid, the unchallenged sexism and racism and those sorts of things, did absolutely influence my generation of kids. Mm-hmm. Just as those elements in other animated stuff that was okay for kids. Granted, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is an adult movie that features a bunch of kids stuff in it that it's something that I think in American cinematic history marks a very clear dividing line of um, maybe things that it's okay to bring the kids to can have more mature themes um, along, I guess you would say the, the Shrek axis of we're going to throw in some bondage jokes and they're just going to be in there. Um, and you'll never look at the gingerbread man the same way. Oh man. Um, the, there, there is, there's something still quite unique about this movie, even though it now has a spiritual sibling in rescue Rangers that makes me appreciate it, but also makes me glad that, that there is not a direct equivalent to it for kids to look at and go, Oh, well it's okay because it was in that movie that was okay for me. Right. Uh, it's funny. It made me think of the gap ads that the first ones use computational photography, which is a very tangential kind of thing. It's one of those ads where they froze in space and they kind of rotated it. And you're like, Whoa, how did they do that? And I remember that feeling of seeing those ads and just being like, Oh my God, what do they do? Then you'd see the behind of it. It's like they had 73 cameras along this track and they used 4 million billion computing cycle or whatever. And you're like, now he's like, I can do it on my phone. It's not a big deal. Roger rabbit. Certainly, uh, uh, it doesn't have that gimmicky quality to it. And that's the thing is they did something that was, it could have been incredibly gimmicky. Instead, they made a really good film that happened to also be, uh, you know, a landmark achievement in animation and because it was so good. And then it also made a pile of money. It made like, what was it? 300 something million dollars. So like a probably almost a bill, I don't know, probably a billion dollars with inflation, maybe something like that, like a crazy amount of money for a film in those days. So it led to this whole wave of things. And we, you know, we talked about Duckman uh, and uh, shows for grownups as we were talking about earlier in a few episodes ago. And as Duckman brought in a wave of programs that had maturity or assumed a more mature audience or things you could take. So too, I think did this film say, um, you know, Tron was what 1984, 
1984? Do I have that 1982. right? 1982. 1982. I remember vividly. Yeah. Oh, man. And so this mm-hmm. is 1988 is when it was released. And I think Tron, does Tron have a great plot? I, I mean, I kind of like Tron. I have warm, warm spot in my heart for it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's dopey and thin, but it looked incredible at the time. And you only find yeah. out later, of course, it was essentially hand animated. Well, this film was unapologetically hand animated. Like literally they printed out apparently black and white photocopies of every frame of the film. And that's how they animated it. You know, that was the technology they're dealing with. Mm. So you can be impressed at the time. It holds up really well because the acting's good and the physicality is so good. And they did so much work to make it feel inhabited. So uh, great, I think great film. Keep all the problematic elements in mind and and like that. I, I want to bring and, up one. Th- oh, and, sorry. Uh, and I and I will say, uh, for all the casting of the humans, Joanna Cassidy is perfect. She's so She's wonderful. Great. Oh her. my god. Per, I mean, just the look, the tone, the the manner, everything is. And again, just not overdoing. Like she has great yeah. funny moments, but she's right, like in the sweet spot of where that character should be. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that wonderful line where where she goes, "I'm sorry, I'm I'm late, Eddie, but I had to shake the weasels." And there's just this <laughs> one split second look from Hoskins, and I'm like, "I never got that in." Oh, I didn't get that till you said that. Huh. I didn't. And 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 she uh, she doesn't get as much to do in the movie as yeah. Bob Hoskins, exactly. but her delivery of that one line is so deadpan, <laughs> so straight it's ahead perfect. that that's what sells the joke so much better. Yeah. That you can have been watching the movie for thirty years and have not gotten it, and only <laughs> get I it once did. you listen to a podcast. That's I love. Thank you for that <laughs> gift. I highly recommend people uh, who uh, listen to this podcast if you've seen the movie, you're going to go see it now that we've talked it up so much. Uh, Disney Plus has the extra their dvd extras and so you get this grainy you know uh 240p <laughs> video that's been upsampled uh from the time but it's the behind the scenes thing is very charming it's because it's before they did so much pr work to make everything slick so people are being honest and talking about how miserable they are but there's some great things in it <laughs> well that one thing we did was a disaster but at least <laughs> exactly. the movie's good yeah so could i say my my one oh, yeah. last little thing oh, is yes. because i was running through the imdb and uh the jessica rabbit credit is for the performance the model for right. the body of jessica rabbit and we we down at the bottom the voice of kathleen turner uncredited yes which is like what uncredited is, what, what? that's one of those studio things right she had a contract with somebody else I, at the I time guess so or... but it's just offensive. I, uh, well, you know? <laughs> the, no, the the, uh, the the lack of credit, I think, is probably more due to the fact that the yes, the movie ended up making a bunch of money, but in the world of making movies, that anything gets made and that yeah. anything turns a profit is a miracle on top of a miracle. <laughs> and it very well could be that her um, her quote was such. I mean, Kathleen Turner in 1988. Yeah. Could would I mean she could she command money? Bankrupt the she film. Would, she yes, could, she would she have could required a lot of yeah. and and she has I, a fair you, number of lines in that yeah, movie. Yeah. It's not like it's such an under five kind of a deal. I, I think what it comes down to is they could pay her as an uncredited voiceover performer and not have to contractually pay her what her agency would require Disney to pay her, but because of the nature of the project and her interest in being a part of it, um, you know, actors have done crazier things for uh, radically less popular and profitable movies. But if it's, if it's the difference between her getting to be in the movie versus somebody else getting to do something, um, you know, 
actors can look past the fact that, oh, this is a giant production by Disney and it has all this revolutionary stuff attached to it. It could have been a giant train wreck. Either way, she wanted to be part of it. And and sometimes this is just the way that people actually end up doing stuff like this. And this is the period before we have voiceover artists in animation that are actually great big stars. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, you look right. down who did the voices for uh, the tunes yeah. in this movie. It's not... It's not stars, but obviously in Chip and Dale and all the Disney movies that have come between Roger Rabbit and this, you know, big deal. Yeah. They they hire big deal actors because they know people will know who those voices are done by. The biggest difference between the two where Roger Rabbit still feels like a little bit of comfort food and Rescue Rangers is part of the trend of, OK, now Chris Rock and David Schwimmer are doing this or that. <laughs> because in this movie, you've still got Mel Blanc and Tony Anselmo and of David Lander and June Foray and oh, yeah. Jim Cummings, Jim, Cum- Jim Cummings, Jim Cummings, who is now Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and Pete and <laughs> dozens of other things. Um, you have these folks that, you know, like Jack Angel would be credited on this as additional voices. And he's about 12 different voices in it. And he got paid, you know, a sandwich in a hotel room, relatively speaking, compared to what, some folks get paid for this stuff these days. And you have people like Corey Burton, who was the tune voice of judge doom over top of Christopher Lloyd. I mean, Nancy Cartwright, Nancy Cartwright was that poor dead shoe. I was, I um, couldn't believe that. Nancy well, she did Cartwright. a great job with that voice. Really? She, she touched By the all. way, Nancy Cartwright, a really good follow on TikTok. So that's uh Roger. So, I mean, the, yep. the, the bridge over to rescue Rangers yes. for me is that, um, there's a, it's the most overall enjoyable and compelling performances in rescue rangers for me are really not most of the main characters um or even some of the uh you know side characters like sweet pete or um uh uh the um uh captain putty uh played by jk simmons you know they're, they're nice and everything but it's it's the the bits around the edges that are all practiced voiceover performers where, you know, I just mentioned Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings is also in a bunch of, of rescue Rangers. Um, but it, it, it's distracting to me more than more immersing for me when I can very clearly tell, okay, that's Tim Robinson is ugly Sonic and that's Seth Rogen. And, um, you know, that's, that's John Mulaney and Andy Samberg. And I enjoy John Mulaney and Andy Samberg, but it was, oh, I'm watching John Mulaney and Andy Samberg, not Chip and Dale. Um, it, it, it like, that's, that's where, that's where I, I was kind of hesitant about this one going in. And mm-hmm. on the other side of having seen it three times, oh gosh, I hated it. I saw it three times. Um, <laughs> oh, no. dinner was awful. I ate all of it. Um, I, it's it's interesting to me that the stuff like that that does bother me the the writing of the movie is so canny and so sharp that I can look past one of my biggest annoyances which is the pushing aside of performers who are the best at what they do in favor of oh people will definitely go and see this more because Flula Borg is in it oh have I told you Flula Borg is in it I love Flula Borg. But, you know, that he's the voice of the of the German DJ snake didn't affect my interest in seeing the movie. The the movie is the movie is the movie. Um, And I think the thing that they have most in common with Roger Rabbit, other than the shifting of modes and cross media stuff, is the heart of the movie being about doing what's right. 
um, for, for people and not, uh, and not just using people like resources. Let me interrupt for one second to say that, um, because this film is a very mild film, like there are stakes in it and there are some pretty creepy things that happen in it, but it is kind of mild compared to the nature of Roger Rabbit. I want to fire off like a, like a half volume spoiler horn because we can't really spoil a film like this that much there are things you wouldn't know or guess i guess but they're more like jokes as opposed to like um like oh my god we learned this incredible thing or this huge revelation or or whatever so we're going to fire off the maybe the half volume spoiler horn now and we'll dig into chippendale So let, let me do a quick uh, plot recap. Let me see if I can do it. Can I do it in one, one sentence? Is uh, Chip and Dale are estranged because of a conflict that occurred at the end of the taping of their series and due to miscommunication and hurt feelings, they don't see each other for a really long time. Uh, and then someone starts making bootlegged films and kidnapping tunes. So they meet back up, have a moral imperative to do something and uh, uncover the plot and save the day and rescue the tunes. Is that the whole film? That's good. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. There's bits. Yeah. But, but so I've seen it, I've only seen it twice, Moises. I've not seen it three times. And uh, I, I'd heard good things about it. I'd heard it was also a very, you know, John Mulaney, Annie Samberg, uh, Lonely Island, uh, the whole, you know, I kind of knew what I was getting into. So I was like, all right. And, but I felt like they, uh, I felt like they captured a decent sense of the charm of the original. Cause especially, I mean, the fact where they show the scene and they're laughing for way too long, that is pretty funny. That to me was almost yeah. a Steve Martin pouring the coffee into the pan moment in dead men don't wear pad, which goes on <laughs> and on and on. I just thought, okay, they get it when they're making that joke. And they kind of pulled me in with, with the cheesiness there. Um, but you know, I, I think it was very, I think it was very pleasant and it was, it was, um, it almost had a Pete adventures of Pete and Pete quality to me. Yeah. As opposed to a Roger rabbit, like <laughs> <laughs> going back well, to the old show. We, we, we finally, we discovered a covert Pete and Pete movie. That's uh, right. That, <laughs> they could have been that's, that's my revelation of the day. That's right. Uh, Shelly, what do you think about, uh, Chip and Dale? Were you, I mean, uh, it sounds like the rest of us were watching this show contemporaneously, the original series, as mild as the original series was, it was entertaining. what do you think about, uh, this film? Yeah, I wasn't watch. I had no, I mean, I had heard the name of those characters, but that's exactly all I knew. So there's no nostalgia for me there. Um, the moments of the movie, and even like I think Melanie and Sandberg are actually kind of charming together uh, in this case. And I, I, I like most of the performative parts of it. And I, you know, just just sort of watching the movie along, uh, it's it's fun. It's nice. It's mild. I my biggest issues are the big picture things and just the sort of we're not only winking at the audience, but we're almost leaning out of the screen and saying, hey, pay attention to our meta jokes. And then also, uh, this is where I go, we have a giant corporation, we have Disney, owner of all the IP that there is, uh, making jokes about the entertainment industry and about bootlegging and about just all the things uh, that uh, over which Disney has, you know, very strong sort of capitalist corporate oh feelings God. and yeah. control. And it's just like, wait, there's nothing indie there's nothing you know sort of off there, there's there's nothing revolutionary about the the people behind this movie but yet they're trying to make jokes that sort of uh talk about the the uh the uh, ex excesses of the entertainment oh my business God. and it just felt really wrong to Shelley, me this is an 
this is an after-school special. Don't bootleg kids. Kids, don't... I didn't... It just struck me. <laughs> right, which is, of course, if I'm going to get kids for two hours, that is the message that I want to wow. get out to them most of all. Don't bootleg kids. Don't don't copy that Chip and Dale floppy. Don't copy... <laughs> don't I mean, swipe is, that chip. It is right? kind of like, you know... Uh, we're we're gonna oh, save man, the great. transit system, and we're not gonna have the freeway system, and it's it's kind of a similar thing. Of you know, yeah. hey hey, it's it's not okay to have anything that isn't a major studio or major property. It's our stuff. Don't don't do anything. It's like oh, but okay. but we're we're making jokes about. I mean, when yeah. they they get to they get a show, the show ends because one of them is going to go do another show but all yeah. the sort of jokes about them being in the entertainment business it's like yeah the entertainment business is kind of a a dog eat dog place and it's kind of a rat race and it's kind of terrible both for relationships and just the way things are made <laughs> hi we're disney we're making this movie it's hilarious <laughs> uh yeah and uh i mean there's a sensibility of the film that I, I think as you described that I was like, Oh, this film isn't so much as a film as it's, it's like a, it's like an, a, a long episode. I mean, it is film. Like it does have a, a bigger theme, right? But it also has like Instagram and TikTok sorts of moments in it, even as it's making fun of Instagram and TikTok. So like the whole, uh, I mean, how many accounts do you follow? Maybe too many on my part that are doing like fake, you know, there's the guy who does the fake uh, um, old book covers, right? The classic book novel covers yeah. that are ridiculous. And I was like, I was laughing my head off at, you know, Pooj the fat bear and some of these other things, you know, particularly the first time they have that little bit of the, uh, the B flats joke, right? Each time you laugh less and less, but the surprise <laughs> of seeing it, especially inside a Disney film, was felt extreme, uh, you know, that, that first time. And even the, it's a really, I think it's a really good joke that chip gets the 3d surgery. Like that is a, a that is weird, a good joke. that's yeah. clever. Yeah. And it yeah, makes it you, it yeah. helps you throughout the whole film. You're kind of, you get to see him in this very different light. Yeah, I love that they look different because he's had that surgery and the 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 way that he's drawn and the way that the lighting comes off of him and just like, yeah, I get what you did there, buddy. <laughs> For me, uh, the the biggest the biggest bone I have to pick kind of relates to you know when we first see him after he's he's been three D up converted as it were. <laughs> um, is uh, I I'm saying this from my hotel room on the road working a comic convention is the portrayal. This is very meta. Are we, is this <laughs> Dale calling in? Do we have a Dale participant? A little bit. Oh no, it's yeah. for me, it, the, the, the thing that bugs me um, in media, I, I feel like the one, the one movie, the one thing that has gotten the world of comic cons the closest um, is it's, it's probably a tie between galaxy quest and Jan silent Bob reboot. Um, because Kevin Smith spends a lot of time in conventions and galaxy quest, the premise wouldn't work if that didn't feel realistically like con. Um, the, the notion that every celebrity who is at a con yeah. is as washed up as oh, ugly yeah. Sonic or Tigra yeah. from the really ugly looking Avengers cartoon or that kind of thing drives me up the wall. Yeah, yeah. Because because the uh, these are these are famous people or people who are known from media who are charging for autographs and pictures and selfies and shout outs to grandpa and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, yeah, they they are making money doing that instead of um instead of being somewhere else. Um and for a lot of these folks 
they don't have a retirement fund. They don't have the kinds of benefits that people think, oh, this person I saw on a TV show, well, they must, everybody who's in a TV show or in a movie must be fantastic. Anna Kendrick, uh, when she was nominated for supporting actress at the Oscars for Up in the Air, like had to return stuff so that the charges didn't go through on her debit card. Cause she oh like could God. barely make rent. So well, there's just something to the dynamic that, that kind of bugs me on that end, but I'm able to look past it a little bit because at the end of the day, um, you know, the, 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 uh, famous characters that are at this convention, um, you know, end up helping save the day. Um, spoilers for the end of the movie. This is, um, but, but Moises, there's a really weird, ironic thing that, that when you describing this, I realize is some of the people who aren't like, you know, like Will Arnett or whatever, but a lo- uh, some of the people voicing and some of the characters are people you like best in this film. It sounds like, uh, the vo- people who are uh, voice actors or primarily voice actors do a lot of that work and are working professionals and aren't, you know, superstars, right? Whatever. Alan Oppenheimer. Yeah. So they're yeah. going, am I not right? They go to comic cons and they are making a substantial part of their living from doing this. So they're actually successful in the role that they're being portrayed in their character yeah. in the movie is not being successful on, which is very rude. But then you also yeah. have, but then you also have, you know, yeah. obviously at a comic con, if there were a He-Man and there were a Skeletor in reality and you went to comic con to see them. So they show, and they show Baloo. So there are, there are some big name successes and they're kind of trying to show us the back rows, the less traveled ones. But even then people are stopping, you know, and, and, um, I don't know. The whole I, the the ugly Sonic thing was, I the the fact that it was allowed to me was so shocking. It overcame any of my <laughs> critical thinking about whether it was appropriate. But it was it was a really amazing through line. Like they didn't even drop it. It comes back at the end as an important plot point. It saves yeah. the day. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean the 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 thing like it, it'll it'll continue bugging me. Um, but it's, it's made somewhat better, I guess, by the way that these characters are employed later on, uh, in, in everything. But it's, it's something that, that is, uh, part of the reason that being immersed in the world of cons as much as I am, um, I had a different perspective on it. Like when I got yeah. out of acting school, I was, I was like oh, charging money for an autograph. I will never be laid so low. Uh, and how dare William Shatner create this inflated sense of what an autograph costs and all this other stuff. The fact that these people put a price tag on it is the reason that people have access to their heroes. And some people that absolutely is the one social thing that they go and do that they look forward to in whatever city they're in every year. And so it's like that. That's something that was disappointing to me about the movie. But frankly, it could have been worse. It could have been like it was in Ted 2 or in various other things that don't handle this world terribly well. What I do like, however, is some some folks that I've become collegially friendly with, like Jim Cummings, like Tress McNeil, um, uh, um, Corey Burton, um, Alan Alan Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer. the Mm. voice of Skeletor, (laughs) who doubles as the voice of He-Man in this, because the original voice of He-Man, he's long since retired. Um, You know, Alan, yeah, Alan, Alan is still going strong. What the heck? He's 92 years old. Good for him. And still going strong. Um, That's what kind of makes it okay for me, is that it's, it starts out as a, dig at the washed up that ends up in execution being a bit more of a celebration. So it's something that, you know, I'll still continue to have conflicted feelings about, but 
look, it could have been worse. Um, I, I will always love that we got Rachel Bloom as a an Ardman style sheep. Um, but the the for for me the overall celebration of all kinds of different animation going further than Roger Rabbit did, like Mister mm-hmm. Natural is in this. What? Mm-hmm. Like oh that was uh, wild th- oh yeah hey, but let's let's break out there for a second if you don't well, mind me sure go for it. go 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 the go, episode go. back is one of the things that was uh so we talked about this early on uh, many hours ago when we started this podcast I kid uh, we talked about animation <laughs> on the styles first day of this podcast because it was, uh, <laughs> back in day one of Comic Con Con Comic Con uh, we uh, uh, Roger Rabbit was revolutionary because they were doing these you know hand drawn cells on top of integrated improv acting incredible stuff but it was all pretty much in one style so they did different renditions like you know they and they had to use for studio reasons the old daffy duck and things like that right but it was all kind of it was all cell-based animation it was all very specific the the cool thing here is they really did take advantage of doing 2d 3d of doing you mentioned it claymate the claymation i had to stop and i'm watching it with my 15 year old and and they're pretty observant this kind of thing and i'm like I got to show you this again. I'm like, watch them actually animate putty in the herky jerky uh, frame Mm -hmm. stop motion style, as opposed to everything else, which is smoothly animated. And I was like, that was a chef's kiss that they did that. And it's consistent. And I think it's nice. So you can have, um, you know, Sonic, you can have 2d characters. Um, It's really neat. You have a Muppet. A mup, yeah, a Muppet sock puppet. What else? Muppet sock puppet it rhymes. The there's also the great moment when you have the human actress, right? You've got um, who just pops her head up. Uh, I should remember her actual human actress, human actress Kiki Lane. Um, she uh, when they're in the uh, uh, Mare Jack's apartment and she just sticks her head in the window and you're like, whoa! And everybody in the film reacts and I was kind of like, whoa! And they're like, oh, they even chose to do the scale thing. They didn't try to mess it up and kind of put everybody in the right. same scale or whatever. That was kind of hilarious to see her like crouching into the super high-end Monterey Jack flat. Well, just in general, like this, I, I actually found the sizing of different creatures throughout the movie because Chip and Dale are itty bitty and even their other... Yeah tune or animated characters are quite a lot bigger than they are and then the human actress she has to sit down or kneel down in many cases so that you can have a two shot or a three shot of them and i i enjoyed that a lot because it just it it did still feel in the way that roger rabbit was sort of easy in the uh combination of tunes and humans Mm -hmm. there were fewer humans relatively speaking in this movie relative to the number of animated characters but still it felt easy and i liked that it didn't feel like it needed to say and of course it's you know 35 years later but it didn't feel like it's we're mixing humans and tunes together it it just ha- it just worked yeah this didn't have to be as good as it is it could have been it could have been just you know hey we're just going to do this gimmick and it's going to be like you know hey it's Roger Rabbit but we're doing you know and uh I mean, I I was impressed by Mulaney and Sandberg. I didn't think I was going to enjoy that, but I I thought they did a good job. But yeah, I mean, it it's filled. I mean, okay, it's it's written by people who grew up watching mystery science theater. It's that kind of quick joke reference, random things, and uh, even just the things that sort of pass by as the camera goes, uh, like the the poster for Lego Miserable. I'd like to oh see gosh. Lego Miserable. <laughs> um, the uh, oh, what what was the other? The Jurassic Park reference of the the banner fluttering down. E. T. versus uh, Batman was 
E.T. Forgive Batman. Oh my god. Okay. Vo- uh, voiced by Akiva Shaffer. Yeah. I, I got to bring up a uh, a critical point for anything that involves Disney is copyright, of course. And so to me, this is in, this is such an in thing. And I, I don't know. I don't know who came up with the idea of who made Peter Pan the gang boss, but it's brilliant from a copyright perspective because, you know, there's this long, there's a, there's actually kind of a, you know, this error that people think that Disney took only made its movies entirely from the public domain from stories that entered the public domain. And of course they didn't. There were a lot of stories that they did that were like Snow White and these things that did predate that had fallen into the public domain by the time Disney made them. And other times, uh, other cases, Walt Disney, like, you know, essentially, uh, you know, screwed creators as opposed to, or, and sometimes had to pay them a lot. The Bambi story about which I've written 4,000 words. You can find it online. Search for Glenn and Bambi and you'll find it. Not those pictures, the other pictures. Uh, Bambi, I won't won't recount the whole history, but Bambi, the descendants of the guy who wrote it, they wound up getting Disney into such a bind that I think Disney did not try to get the copyright extension uh, renewed or get another copyright extension a, a few years ago, like three years ago, because Bambi, they'd gotten kicked by Bambi so hard and and um, wound up having to pay 20 more years worth of royalties, not to the family, but to the people the family sold Bambi rights to. So there's an incredible irony because Peter Pan, the the stories that it's based on entered the public domain a while ago. The play doesn't enter the public domain in the United States until uh, for another couple of years for complicated reasons. But it's- I was uh, going to say, because that's, a, that's more than 100 years, but- yeah, it's well that like I say, you I have an article about Peter Pan reasons. Peter Pan on the copyright also. Uh so it's um Oh, it won't grow up. Yeah, it's it's twenty. The play will the play will end copyright in uh, January first, twenty twenty four. If you're looking to to uh, produce a your own spin on it, but there's but the uh, the stories have already entered the public domain. So if you had so there is a wonderful. I'm sorry, I went on too long about this. There is a wonderful aspect <laughs> of using Peter Pan as your avatar because. Disney had had made so much money and paid the Barry estate and by extension the uh, the uh, Great Ormond Children's Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital I think uh, mm-hmm. all of this, uh, all, this uh, all this money over the years uh, for uh, to produce these things but to have him be the villain is such a like Disney villain move. It's like, oh, Peter Pan. You mean that character that was now in the public domain that we don't have to pay rights anymore, that we can portray in any way we want? Well, we'll make him the bad guy. That's all I wanted to say. It only took me five minutes. <laughs> I feel like it's great revenge against boys who never grow up everywhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what do we think about this film overall? So we've we've talked about aspects of it. I think, you know, uh, I've got to say, you know, the heartthrob gad- gadget hack wrench makes an extraordinarily excellent return in this film where they could have played. Oh, so this is actually, I would argue they made a great choice about her because she is the unrequited and kind of um, consensually unwanted uh, uh, subject of the attention of Chip and Dale throughout the animated series that this is all based on. Right. And so it's not gross. It's meant for to be kids, but you know, they have a crush on her. They both are sort of jealous of each other about it. She is completely oblivious or we don't know in world. Is she supposed to know and ignores it or or whatever. So instead of turning that into uh, the plot of this film, we have to do this because we have to save gadget. We have to, you know, who's at risk. It's not gadget. It's Monty. Monterey Jack. Um, we have to do this because we need to impress Gadget. There, that whole thing, 
they're all over it. She's married. They're appropriate about it. She's very happy. And she has incredible respect and love for them. And it is a great functional. All of them have a perfectly functional besides Chip and Dale, uh, appropriate friendship relationship among every element of it. And I thought right on because, oh, my God, could they have handled that badly? (laughs) I mean, I don't have the the background, I I will say. And I appreciate you're saying what you did, Glenn, because that gives me a little better visibility to a movie that I felt like needed more female characters. Yes. There just aren't yes. enough. And there's no reason for that. And obviously you have uh-huh. characters that you have to include because I guess they're part of the history and stuff. But there are plenty of created characters that could have incidentally been women and incidentally yes. could have been part of the, the the plot. And it's one of those movies where without being overtly sexist, it's just apparent that, oh, dudes wrote it, dudes cast it, and just dudes made a bunch of movie with dudes. Was, was, I, was I alone? Was I alone in thinking that Kiki Lane's Officer Ellie was just? I mean, it, it's it is a female character. It is a black female character, um, but there's not much to her. Like she serves a functional purpose as, in theory, an audience surrogate, but she's not really introduced as the audience surrogate. Yeah. Dale is. I was expecting her to grow more as in confidence because she sort of is is timid and she's a young cop at the beginning. And I was kind of hoping that her journey would be that she grows in self-confidence and that she's actually able to. And she she has a couple of good scenes at the end, but that she's actually able to sort of morph into somebody who's kind of a badass. And that didn't and, happen. And, and Kiki Lane, like Kiki Lane, if if you have not seen If Beale Street yeah. Could Talk, oh, um, gosh, she is, yes. she is an incredible, to me, she was wasted on this part. I'm glad she got paid. I'm glad to see her, always glad to see her. But I wish they had done anything remotely worth having had her time. No, the only thing that was worthy of her is when she fights Putty at the end. And she does something, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's kind of the only scene. Yeah. I was thinking about this when you said that too, is like, how much did they shoot with her? Was she there for like two or three days on some sets? Because that part of it is, I don't feel that she really inhabited a space with the other characters where all the animated characters seem to have relationships with each other. She was kind of a plot moving along person. And, um, you know, she, she was the, 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 the uh, guideposts for what was happening in the plot. But she's um, kind of cute with Chip and Dale in a few scenes. I, yeah, I like yeah. the way they did it, but you don't really know when she's going to show up. She just sort of pops in. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Like, there she oh, is. Hello. There she is. There's our human. <laughs> ah. Well, and then they tried to play it as, as, um, you know, maybe she's not on the up and up and Chip is suspecting her, but they didn't even play that terribly well. Like yeah, I had, it comes up and then goes I, away. I, I try to, you know, I try to put on my impressionable kid goggles every now and then and go, yes, I, you know, I write stuff and I've acted in stuff and I've made stuff and I can see into the matrix of, of storytelling (laughs) and blah, 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 blah. I talk too much. Um, but you know, could I see this as a reasonable conceit that they were actually trying to convince me of? I don't think they, the, the people making the movie were convinced that they were convincing anybody that she was potentially, you know, a scab. It's too bad because it was kind of a great setup. It was like, I love, you're like, why are they doing the specificity that he is so obsessed? He has the wall map that's color coded, which is kind of cute, actually. You know, and that's just the kind of thing you would expect from somebody who is supposedly a washed up star, right? They're painting him that way. Also, sidebar, insurance 
is apparently the worst thing that can ever happen to somebody because remember Bob <laughs> in the Incredibles, everybody is every character. Yep. If you're not doing well, you're an insurance salesman. I don't I, know. I think that was an intentional reference to you the think Incredibles. so? That's great. Because, That's great. you know, why not? I, I think the, the writing of this was okay. I think the jokes were really good. Mm-hmm. I think the plotting was you know, we know the tropes. We don't necessarily know how to make them work properly. We don't know how to make them convincing. But we, we're going to do a decent story oh, and tell jokes. We should talk to about this, like, what kind, who are they aiming this at? There is a sort of funny thing that some of the characters use, like Peter Pan. They're showing us footage that's like 70 years old. Or, you know, Baloo, at least, is a more recent, you know, we've seen him. Uh, there were remakes and um, and he was part of the Disney afternoon as well. And that's even well, and cle- called clearly out. the joke being that he had the CGI upgrade for the CGI remake oh, of the Jungle Book. Oh, I didn't think about that. Right. You're totally right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, just real quick on the writing, the 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 co-writers on the movie were um, were on the writing staff of How I Met Your Mother uh, mm. about 10 years ago or so. Uh. And and I, I think like <laughs> if you look at this as, oh, it's a Lonely Island movie and it is a Lonely Island movie. It's yeah. Akiva Schaffer and Andy Samberg's in it. But the people who who actually built the bones of the narrative very much come from more of a sitcom-y background. And so like this, the sitcom-y thinness of some parts of it. And and now I feel like I'm over analyzing it and I'm like, why is this not uh, Reiner Werner Fassbender's world on a wire? Um, Like, (laughs) I mean, uh, I'm sure many viewers of this movie have felt that uh, very same thing. Probably so either that, either that, or they want to know, um, you know, why, why they're not more deeply leaning into stalker. Why is there not more horror about the nature of the universe in this movie? It seems like it has not have enough existential feeling to it. (laughs) Also, where's uh, Alvin? It's about chipmunks. I'm sorry. Yeah. I love that they could use those chipmunks without yeah, having to pay anybody else because they own that now. <laughs> why Why do they always make the chipmunks rap? And of course, in the end, the chipmunks also have to rap. I do love that. I do love that their rap is so incredibly terrible. That, yes. That because they don't yes. immediately... I mean, then they break into, you're like, oh, now they're going to do good, good rap. It's like, no, it is still bad. And then they're going to comment. And I'm like, that is funny. That is actually. And, and then to have Flula Turner and go, that was very bad rapping. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was going to point out that because we don't have Toontown in this, because Toontown is kind of a uniform 2D animational style, historic animational style, we have Main Street. Which is, you know, a Sesame Street thing, but that's where we get to see all the varieties well, and styles. Well, it's a Street, Disney thing. Main Street, yeah. Main Street oh, is I'm a sorry. Disney park thing. Absolutely. It's a Disney yeah. park thing. But that, then they of, call of the various it different. A oh, of, but wait, a hive how, of villainy how is, and scum. <laughs> exactly. Like that, to me, sorry, the most Disney subversive thing is that they went after what's considered like a, a pretty, a pretty sacred piece of Disney iconography, the, the which is the fun. Yeah. Heartland of, of, oh, it's like Marceline, Louis, Illinois. everywhere. Um, I, that was the, that was the bit that surprised me the most, not the making Peter Pan, the bad guy doing, <laughs> you know, good. all the bootleg stuff. That was the thing that surprised me the most. And then I went, Oh yeah, it's right. The, the guy who, uh, who seemed like he was singularly focused on ru- ruining the Disney parks experience is now CEO of Disney. So of course he let uh, them do this. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, yep. Oh, that's great. 
That's great. Well, let's, uh, I think we could probably wrap this up. We've, uh, we'll turn off the spoiler horn, which I guess has been going on all this time. I'm not sure how the horn works. <laughs> it's really uh, loud. Man. But, uh, so it's... let's, let's do the wrap up. I think we've had a lot of talk about, um, various feelings about it. Uh, but I'll, I'll start cause I'm brief, which is it's, it seemed like a, a mostly charming film. I enjoyed watching a second time. It's a little thin, but I can see that it's got enough that parents, I mean, this is the Disney plus joy. It's got enough that, uh, kids of the right age might watch it again and again, and parents can tolerate it. So that is great. And and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it with my 15 year old who also enjoyed it, even though again, they've basically seen almost none of the properties of any kind, except for ugly Sonic mentioned it. I mean, if, uh, if you're going to go there, um, you know, if if you're going to get wrecked, get wrecked. And if you're going to get Shrek get Shreked. Oh. And uh, oh. see, it's see that. everything oh. has to end in a terrible rap. So that's that's that what I'm doing, good. I guess. But Don't I, the, the, the thing I the thing I really love the most about this is I, I have a friend who is a, a huge, huge animation history nut um, who loves Roger Rabbit for all of the historical aspects of it more than the actual narrative of it. And um I told her that ah, rescue Rangers, it's okay. It's, it's not that bad. Um, but yeah, you, you should probably see it. It's, it's uh, definitely your kind of thing. And then she was like, Oh, but, uh, a, a few days later, um, didn't you say that it was bad? And I said, no, I didn't say it was bad. I just, I was okay. I was artificially lowering your expectations because if there was a single person I know who this movie was made for more than you, I don't know who that person is. That's funny. Um, That's very funny. It, it is, it is a lovely celebration of animation history and that sentimentally for me is the thing that linking it to Roger Rabbit, they had to get the most right. They didn't even need to have a Roger Rabbit cameo and we got a Roger Rabbit cameo and it felt good and it was there and, and it Charles was done. Charles Fleischer. Yeah, and it, that was and nice. And it was Charles Fleischer. That was very nice. That was nice. Um, but let me tell you something. I would have burned Main Street down if it uh, had not been Tress McNeil reprising the role of Gadget Hack Wrench. That was so um, great. I was so pleased to hear her. And Alex was a little squicked about the like, wait, they have 42 children and they're all horrors of nature. But that was still it was a good joke, though. And and I love the idea that Zipper, who, you know, spoke like in the show, uh, is voiced by Dennis Haysbert. That's, uh-huh. that's good. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's funny. He's best known to some people for wait for it selling insurance yeah uh, <laughs> there uh, you go um in a the, deep the voice one, the, oh the one God. last thing that I, that i wanted to mention um i i i think that um in the grand scheme of what disney plus is doing i enjoyed the movie and i enjoy what it potentially means for what we'll continue to see happening on disney plus beyond more marvel shows more star wars shows i would love to see more inventive playing with animation as a form from one of the, if not the most storied, still extant animation studios on the planet. Mm-hmm. I think if, so- if Sony is doing the Spider-Verse stuff and eating all of Mickey Mouse's lunch, then maybe Mickey Mouse should go back into the kitchen and learn how to cook lunch. And and this this to me is is saying maybe maybe they are going to test those boundaries, stretch them, and with the freedom of having 20th century studios in their hands now, they don't necessarily always have to put the Disney name on it and they can still do it inside the mouse's house. Shelly, what are your, uh, what are your closing thoughts? I, I mean, I'm, and I want to say something different than what I have said before, because oh. I've, I've talked about the things that 
annoyed me about it and just sort of the, the winking and referentialness that I thought was a little bit too aggressively meta. Uh, and I also, I think my lukewarmness about the movie overall has to do with the fact that I don't have the nostalgia for either the specific IP or for some of the, uh, even the animation stuff, because I just don't, it's just not stuff I consumed at that era, uh, you know, or I guess early 90s is when we're talking about. It's just not, not something I was consuming. So I make room for the possibility that for a lot of people, this is whether it's a great movie or not, it's a really enjoyable movie because it was the the IP that they enjoy. Uh, dare I say the shows they enjoy as opposed to the IP, maybe I should put it that way, uh, is, is well handled and, and well cared for. So for me, it was like, it was fine, uh, except for the things that annoyed me about it. The, the things I liked the best about it were, and that surprised me. I mean, I like I say, I, I felt pretty good about most of the performances, and I didn't think that's what I would like, especially given what I said earlier about voice acting in, in Roger Rabbit. And I think we kind of agree about that, that it would be nice to just have people that are professional voice actors mm-hmm. as opposed to like, you know, let's get famous people. And not that they're terrible, but uh, yeah, it was fine. I guess is where I come down. <laughs> David, what do you have to say? If anything, you're not obliged to contract. No, I, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, like I said, I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. I thought, you know, oh, it's just going to be a cheap thing, and I enjoyed it. I'm going to watch it again to see if I can pick up more little throwaway things on the sides of the frames. Um, you know, was it? Did it have too many meta jokes or too many little winking nods and references? Uh, maybe, yeah. I, I can, I can totally see that. There were a couple I was perfectly fine with. I loved seeing Andrew Lloyd Webber cats fighting in an alley. That was, that was uh, really that good. Was, oh, I forgot that that was cats. <laughs> we never talked about the Uncanny Valley, which the, was well, yeah, very good. That was perfect, and and you know, uh, Seth Rogen's Viking, uh, whose eyes, you know. No, I'm looking right at you. No, you're looking funny. at the window over there. No, I don't you see? Look at my eyes. I'm looking right and, at you. And bringing in cameos from literally every other animated character that Seth Rogen has played for oh, yeah. you know, oh, three frames point. was just and a you know a lovely little drop in. There, there's just so many references kiss. in this thing that we could still be talking about this six hours from now. And, and I should say, um, uh, it's very pointed to have this movie that is clearly inspired by Roger Rabbit and to make fun of how bad the CGI animation is in another Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah. That's great. Um, and then this, this one is like, yeah, all right, you guys are all from the New York area. We get it. But I loved this back and forth where, you know, sweet Pete is doing, you know, I'm going to change how the way, the way you look. And he says, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. That was good. You'll never get away with this. The <laughs> men's warehouse reference? I think I am. And, oh, and... and it's such a of, dumb joke, but it, of IP, it just hit my tickle spot. They got one Snoopy ear in. They couldn't get a whole Snoopy, but they could get one ear <laughs> in. That's all they could afford. Uh, well, folks, thank you for two, Thank you for your involvement in this episode, folks. And uh, Jason still is... Uh, I'm getting a message from him. I need to return to the control room he's given me instructions to fly at second star to the right and straight on till morning thanks for giving me the helm for this episode uh this has been i've been your host glenn fleischman i've had shelly brisbane moises Gian, and david j lore 
Thanks, folks. No, it's Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> the Eleanor Reservoir? Reservoir Dogs is another episode. That's what we call him in the Slack channel. That's, uh, and uh, so thanks for listening to another episode of The Incomparable. You can find us at theincomparable.com where you can become a member, listen to the 43 shows we referenced on this episode. There'll be some <laughs> things in the show notes that might help with that. And tune into uh, live streams and uh, get our bootleg episodes. Do a lot more. Theincomparable.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll we'll find you again next time. <laughs>